All right. Um, so we are going to um, cover some serious ground tonight in the text. And then next week we will cover the uh, resurrection. I intentionally chose um, this much for tonight because I really I was hoping to see the text just kind of lay out in front of us um, as we focus on on the arrest and the crucifixion. Um, and then I had printed off the schedule for Acts. Uh, in the back there. So if you want to uh, keep up or follow along with the reading uh, throughout the next cycle as we go through Acts, um, it's back there. And I'll have it back there next week as well. So let's pray. And then as I promised at the end of last week, we're going to actually start uh, with that little bit at the beginning of twenty. One, I'm um, talking about the widow and her offering and uh, Mr. Green's perspective on that. So, Lord God, we come before you tonight as people desiring to hear from you and to see you clearly and to be moved by your spirit. And so we ask that your spirit would come and move among us, that you would illuminate uh, this text as for many of us, it is so familiar, and so we pray, Lord, that we would be able to focus on you in a new and fresh way, and that you would help us to not be uh, trapped by preconceived notions, but to be present tonight in the text and to hear what it is that you desire for us to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. So, as I mentioned last week, at the end, uh, at the beginning of 21, you know, we uh, have this break uh, with t- between the end of 20 and the beginning of 21, which has, causes us to say, this seems to be a new thought, when in reality it's the same scene. And as uh, Joel Green here points out in his uh, very robust commentary on uh, Luke's Gospel... Um, it's not a competition to see whose commentary is bigger, by the way, if you're comparing commentaries. Um, He wants us to think about how one through four actually ties in with the previous story. And if we just go back slightly, we see um, in verse 46 and 47, Jesus is chiding uh, the people, the scribes, And he's talking about how they devour devour, uh, the widow's houses for a pretense uh, and for a pretense make these long prayers. And then he says, look, there is a woman, there's two individuals that are contributing their uh, offering at the temple and the woman uh, gives everything that she has to live on is the words that Jesus uses. And Green points out the fact that he wants to make the case that what is happening here is that Jesus is actually condemning how the leaders of the temple are using the tithing system and using it in an oppressive fashion. Because we've talked about, we talked about earlier in the section last week, about how Jesus is furious at how these people that are selling goods in the temple for sacrifices are exploiting the people and taking advantage of people and using God's house, which is a house of prayer, for this house of commerce. And so what Jesus, what Joel Green is saying is that Jesus is looking at this woman and saying, how dare you create a system within God's house that benefits you, the people who collect the tithe, and disadvantages the widow who literally has nothing left to live on. And so he acknowledges that most interpreters look at it in a comparative aspect of giving and tithing. But he says, what if it's the case that Jesus is saying, how dare you use God's temple for your own benefit? Because the people, again, that are receiving the tithe are benefiting. And so it benefits them to say, I don't care how much money you have, you must give X percent to the temple, even if it costs you everything you have. And so Green uh, says this. 
He says, note that in no way does Luke suggest that Jesus finds the widow's action exemplary or praiseworthy. How could he, when the religious system was supposed to care for such as these, as we'll talk about when we go into Acts chapter 6, not render them utterly destitute? Jesus' mission is to bring good news to the poor, including this widow, not to impoverish the poor even further. And then he says, this widespread assumption about the temple only highlights the necessity of Jesus' criticism of the temple, a criticism already begun in 1941 through 48, because it has fallen into the hands of those who use it for injustice. Jesus must comport himself and his message over against the temple and its leadership in prophetic judgment. So Jesus is putting himself over and against the temple in this prophetic judgment, which leads into the part that we're going to talk about tonight. And we see the seamless transition between Jesus condemning the temple and then making this prophetic utterance that the temple will be destroyed. And so we'll probably just keep, I'm just getting us used to saying this over and over. We have to keep the larger context of what's happening in the gospel or in these large narrative sections so that we can see it for what is actually happening here fully. So it brings up this question, though, for us. What do we do when we come to contrasting interpretations of a particular scripture passage? And so um, for some of us, we just dig in our, our heels and we um, put on our hubris hats, and we say, well, we have the right answer, and so once people understand the right answer, they'll be on our side. Or we come with a little bit more modesty and say, yeah, it's interesting. I'm not exactly sure what to do with that. There seems to be equal ways to interpret the passage. So um, I thought that was quite striking because I had never heard that before. So here we go. We have this huge uh, chunk, two big chapters um, some text that is very familiar to us, and uh, maybe some text that isn't as familiar to us, and they're all going to be strung together uh, into this long section that leads us to Jesus being buried. So, somebody asks, are you going to read this whole thing? And the answer, of course, is yes. <clears throat> And if your neighbor falls asleep while we're reading, just give them a nudge. Uh, no need to shame them openly or publicly because I don't shame anyone that falls asleep because I would be right there with you. <clears throat> and while, so Jesus had just uh, talked about this woman. And while uh, some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, as for these things that you see, you're in uh, Luke chapter 21, the days will come when there will be, uh, not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. And then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilence. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all, of your, all for my name's sake, but not a hair on your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that it is desolation, that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. 
Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the seas and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and when they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory, now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see, your, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all this has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth, but stay awake at all times praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mountain called Olivet. And early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb was to be crucified. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The king's... Kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at a table, or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. He said to them, 
But now, let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that the scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors, for what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, It is enough. And he came out and went as his custom to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to this place... He said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, and Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And then those who were around him saw what would follow. They said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. But Jesus said, No more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders, Who had come out against him? Have you come out as against a robber with swords and club? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay your hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together both the chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who, had himself, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chiefs, chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. 
I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried together, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection, started in the city for, and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, Crucify him, crucify him. A third time he said to them, Why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills cover us. For they do these things when, they, when the wood is green. What will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by, stood by watching. But the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we, indeed, justly, for we were receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. While the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus called out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. Whew. It's a lot. <laughs> that is a lot. So it's interesting, as we move through this, we have Jesus making these uh, prophecies that, you know, that our Bible has this tendency to chop up, when in reality it's one big flowing uh, sentence, or not sentence, but one big flowing speech that Jesus gives about preparing his disciples for what is to come. Because as we move closer to Acts, we see the church as it's begin, going to begin to launch into Acts, and Jesus is coming to the end of his life, and so he's trying to prepare his disciples for what is about to happen. Not only for his death, but also for uh, what's going to happen as they begin to start the church. Now, it is very easy and, and tends to be this way that we want to grab onto uh, this apocalyptic language and these prophecies, and we, where we sit today, look well into the future and say, 
uh, you know, when is this going to happen and try and make all these speculations about the end times. And all of this stuff has basically already happened and happened almost immediately. And so these words were first and foremost for the disciples and for the people that were going to experience them firsthand. And we know that by A.D., in the seven, around 70 A.D. is when the destruction of Jerusalem happens and the temple is turned on its head and broken down by all of the, these wars. And so I want to caution us to not be like, well, I know it happened then, but it's also going to happen again because that was not the intent for these words. The intent for these words was for the disciples to be prepared for what is coming. Because notice Jesus says two different times in this section that they are to prepare for the testing that is coming. He tells them, pray that you would be prepared for the temptation or the testing that is coming, which of course is this interesting mirrored echo of Jesus being tested or tempted by Satan at the beginning of the gospel because Jesus is tested right before what? Yes, his ministry. And what's about to happen as we go into Acts? They're going to start their ministry. And so we see this intermingling of testing and preparation for ministry. And so Jesus is warning them and preparing them for what is about to happen. And also, he's trying to prepare them to not be afraid for what's going to happen. And notice in 13 and then in 19, 13, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. And then 19, by your endurance, you will gain your lives. And then in 28, he says, because your redemption is drawing near. And so he's trying to bolster his uh, disciples in preparation for what's going to happen. Not that it's going to be a bad thing. It's actually going to be a good thing. And for the Jew, for the destruction of the temple to take place, it was a terrible thing. Now, Jews have lived their lives in exile, and this rabbi that was on um, Ezra Klein's podcast a few weeks ago was talking about the Jewish people are people of exile. And that was the big thing when they, the whole diaspora, and they get sent away from Jerusalem because Jerusalem's been taken over, and they're out in, in these desperate or these desolate places because they don't have the temple. Because again, the temple is where God is at. And so to hear that the temple is going to be destroyed is so shocking to them. And it brings up all this history for them of what has happened to their people. And for us, we don't have that context. And so we have a hard time remembering or seeing the importance of it. Because he says in 32, this generation will not pass away until all this has taken place, which kind of squashes the whole idea of this being like this huge end times prophecy thing. And he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. This is an echo. Remember, he talks about the importance of the law. They're questioning him about the law and about divorce and how he says, not one iota or dot of the law should pass away. And as we move into this, I, this uh what we call chapter 22, as they go into Jerusalem and celebrate the Passover, things just start to ramp up. And yes, there's all these things that we're not going to cover in depth, and that was intentional because um, I want us to keep kind of this larger uh, picture of what's happening. So they, have, they celebrate the Passover in the upper room, and, and Jesus is having this moment with, uh, with his disciples and as we've talked about, I mean, we've had a sermon on uh, this whole idea of communion and the importance of communion. And then Jesus talks to Peter about what is going to happen. And he says, I have prayed, this is verse 32, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And it begs this interesting question about Peter isn't asking for this. Notice Peter doesn't go to Jesus even after Jesus says, Satan is going to sift you out like weed, wheat. And, G and Peter doesn't say, well, help me out. Jesus says, I'm praying for you because I know this is going to take place. Because for most of us, the reality is Testing is a regular thing that happens in our lives. 
And it offers up this interesting question, which we're going to discuss tonight. When do we pray for each other? And why do we pray for each other? And what do we pray for each other? Because we all know that we're all living in this life, and this life presents many challenges, but is it the case that we are offering up prayers for each other's faith that it would be this lasting endeavor? Or it's like, well, they didn't ask me to pray for them, so... And it makes us ask this question of how does prayer function in our lives and how do we pray for each other? And also this idea of Jesus praying. I mean, just imagine that. Jesus says, I'm going to pray for you. If Jesus asked us how could he pray for us, what would we say? Because he knows that Peter is about to experience this event that is not going to go well for him. And they go up onto the Mount of Olives And he asks them to pray. And what does he ask them to pray for? Pray that you may not, verse 40, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now, part of this is a temporal thing because they are about to experience some opportunities to be tempted, to walk away from God or to go with the crowd, right? I mean, for some of us, that is the biggest temptation is to not stand on our own, but to be swept up into the crowd, whatever that crowd looks like. And imagine Jerusalem is absolutely packed, and we're about to walk into this trial, and all these people that are you know, either for Jesus or against Jesus, and the powers that be are saying one thing, and if you've grown up as a Jew your whole life, and you know, you're, you're in this heritage, you have this challenge of saying, but how can the priest be wrong? How can the chief priests and the scribes be wrong? Maybe I'm wrong, so you, you get swept up and tempted into following along with the crowd. And so Jesus is trying to get his disciples to have this time of prayer and focus before they go into what is about to happen. And it makes me think about where are they at? They're on the mountain. They have gone out into the perceived wilderness. They're not in the city. Where does Jesus go before he's tested by Satan? He's in the wilderness. And this idea of how the wilderness functions within our own spiritual growth, that the wilderness is not the test, but actually the wilderness is the preparation for the testing. And so they're spending this time in focused prayer so that they are ready to experience what's about to happen. And we see this picture of Jesus. And in, this, in these last few chapters of Luke, the humanity of Jesus is on full and complete display. Because Jesus is in the garden. He knows what's coming. He is moving this thing forward. And he has this moment. And he falls down and he says, God, if there's any way something else can happen, I would be for that. He says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Jesus has this human experience where he says, I know what's about to happen, and I'm not sure I'm really prepared for it. And God, if there's any way out of this, I would be okay with it. And yet he said, Yes. Blind man stood by the road and he cried. Yeah. Yes. So we we hear the words of the man on the roadside saying, Jesus, if you are willing, heal me. And Jesus says the exact same thing to his father. Yes. Yeah, thanks for pointing that out. And then he says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And when we think about the Lord's Prayer, this is exactly the same thing. And how often is it that we've been talking about what Jesus calls his disciples to, and we hold this this tension, we hold this tension of, God, I know that you are calling me into this thing, 
and I'm not sure I'm ready for it, and I'm not necessarily sure I want to do it. We can hold that reality and admit that reality to God and at the same time say, if that's what you want me to do, I will still do it. And so we have this tension of uh, the human reality, which for many, which could be interpreted as this skepticism and belief being held together at the exact same time. These two things are not mutually exclusive. Jesus says, I'm not sure I want to do this, and I will do this. And it makes us see Jesus in his full humanity and acknowledge the obedience to God doesn't mean that we just say, okay, whatever. It doesn't mean that we relinquish all of our own self. It means that we are honest with God about the struggles that we have and to say, God, you have called me into this thing and I know it's going to be very hard and very uncomfortable and it's going to maybe cost me literally everything. And yet, if that's what you want me to do, I will do it. And the disciples, you know, we see this phrase, they are a stone's throw away. And just Imagine what that's like. You've spent three years of your life. You have left everything. You have followed Jesus. You've seen this man do virtually everything. He has calmed storms. He has healed the sick. He has healed the lame. He has cast out demons. He has took on the Pharisees. He has done all of these things. You've seen Jesus in all of his glory. And then you are at the Mount of Olives and you see him in utter and complete anguish over what he is experiencing. And the fragility of Jesus in the garden is this immense human picture. And we see what's happening with the disciples. You know, Luke talks about the sweat that's pouring out of his, his glands that is like blood. And the disciples are literally overcome. They are literally overcome with sorrow. Some translations say grief. And I have to say that for me, I've often seen and been so hypercritical of the disciples. I mean, I'm not great at staying up. Literally last night, it was like 8.30, and I was like, yep, I was just sleeping. <laughs> I got fired from night audit at the Yankton Inn because I slept on the job. Literally just rolled out a... a rolled out of a blanket on the floor because I was like, I, I'm done. I'm done. I know I'm supposed to be awake, so I'll lock the drawer, and I'll, but I'm, I'm going to protect it while I'm sleeping. You're fired. Um, and it was my stepmom, so <laughs> interesting how that works. Anyways, um, so we have this, I, I've had this tendency to be like, how could they not even stay awake? It's Jesus. And when you look at what's happening they are so overwhelmed with their emotions that they seemingly can't continue. They're hearing the words of Jesus. They're seeing him in anguish. They've been told what's going to happen, and they can't handle it. They can't handle it. And we see these instances, as we see in a, a little bit, when, when the, uh, Peter has his experience, what happens? He goes out and he weeps bitterly. So we have Jesus weeping over the city of Jerusalem very publicly. We have the disciples who are overwhelmed by their emotions of what they're experiencing. And then we have Peter, the rock of the church, openly weeping about how he has disappointed and denied Jesus. And there's no soapbox up here. <laughs> we have to get over this completely corrosive and unhealthy belief that to be a man is to not show one's emotions unless they are anger or something in that category. We see the Son of God crying openly. We see the rock of the church 
weeping bitterly, we see the disciples who are so overwhelmed. To be a man of God is to be overcome by the reality of our human emotions, and it's not bad, it's good. So woe to the person that says, to be a man is to not cry, or to not cry publicly, or to not show your emotions, because that is, you got to be in control. Says nowhere in the Bible, nowhere, ever, in the Bible, to be like Jesus is to feel the reality of the humanness experience. And sometimes that's crying, and sometimes that's being overwhelmed to the point you're literally shut down, and you're sleeping from sorrow, and sometimes it's openly being bitterly weeping because you have denied Jesus. And all of that is the total picture of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus as a male. I grew up, most of my adult, or my growing up life, literally, Unless you are bleeding, you cannot cry. Then I literally get hit in the face by John Mulher with a baseball bat, splits my lip open, and my dad has the audacity to say, now it's okay to cry. But the reality is that mental belief is continued to be passed down from generation to generation to generation to generation. And we have to say it needs to stop. And it's not just men. We don't have to apologize for the emotions that we experience. That is what it means to be human. There is no apologizing for the emotions that these people are experiencing. It's called being human. They are so overwhelmed and then they, they react when Jesus is arrested. I mean, this is your Messiah. You, you have this tendency to protect him, even though he's like, stop doing this. And then Peter, he knows what's coming, and yet he can't stop himself. Because oftentimes it's the case that when we're in these situations, the humanness that exists within us can't overcome our desire to follow Jesus. And how often is it the case that we don't outright say that we are denying that we are associated with Jesus, but the words and the actions we use in public are a complete denial of our discipleshipness to Jesus? When somebody says something or makes a joke or makes a comment, and we choose to either laugh or play into it or not comment, we deny the movement of the Holy Spirit in our lives and we deny the messiahship of Jesus in our lives, just as Peter does. Somebody makes a racist comment and we say, oh, hmm. And our silence is the denial of Jesus. Somebody makes a comment about, about someone else that we know in our deepest soul is inappropriate and we stay silent or we play in. And we participate in the denial of who Jesus is in our lives. And woe to us when we come to the place where we are not weeping bitterly about the reality of the sin that exists in our lives. Where the, the sin that exists in our lives and the times that we have denied Jesus are before us and we're like, eh, forgiveness is free. Grace abounds. Peter is crushed. Crushed by the sin that he knew was coming. And yet he's crushed by what he has done to Jesus. And then, of course, we go into this whole trial scene, right? Jesus has been captured. They beat him. They mock him. All of these people want to see Jesus dead. He's brought before the council, and, and he's unwilling to answer them because he knows that the dominoes have been pushed over and everything is headed exactly where it needs to be headed, which is to the cross. 
And it's fascinating because we see both Pilate and Herod, the last people that you would expect to be infatuated or interested in Jesus. I mean, see this picture. The chief priests and the scribes, the people that Jesus came first and foremost to save, are bringing him so that he may be killed by the Roman authorities because they need the Roman authorities to kill him. They are pushing Jesus towards the cross. And when, they come, when he comes to encounter Pilate and Herod, these Roman authorities who should not get it at all, are like, we won't touch him. There is nothing wrong. He is innocent. I have <laughs> these words. Herod has long desired to see Jesus. And we see this continued theme of how the people that don't get it or that are supposed to get it, don't get it. And the people that aren't supposed to get it, they get it. And notice again, verse 28, Jesus says, Do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. And then he goes and he's on the cross. And again, we see these words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus is to the end, to the very end, he is, he is remaining faithful and committed to what he has called his followers to do. When we think about this, you know, I know we've talked about this before. Well, I could never forgive that person. We have the example of Jesus who literally the people that are crucifying him, he is offering them forgiveness. And it just blows my mind. And then he says in verse 46, again, notice that Jesus never loses, Jesus never loses control of the situation. And he has brought about him bringing He's brought about him being nailed to the cross. And Jesus chooses when he dies. Don't miss that. And we're going we're to have this conversation throughout Acts because this phrase occurs over and over. I think it's about six or seven times. I'm not great at counting, according to Heidi. So, so it could be seven, it could be eight, it could be nine. I'm not sure. Jesus says, I am done. So when we think about this, who is responsible for the death of Jesus? Because there's been loads of discussion around this, loads of anti-Semitism that has resulted from this phrase, the one whom you killed, that is directed at the Jews in Acts, which we're going to spend lots of time talking about. But Jesus is the one who says, I am done. He says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus is in control from the beginning to the end. He knows exactly what's happening, and he is orchestrating the advancement and the bringing about of the kingdom of God. And we see that in the ripping of the temple and how all of these things are taking place, and the whole kingdom of God is breaking forth into the present reality for the people that are there. And we haven't even gotten to the resurrection yet. <laughs> And the centurion stands there, and he has this epiphany. And we've seen centurions appear before, and we're going to see them appear again. The centurion is this Roman soldier who shouldn't get it. He gets it. He sees clearly who Jesus is and acknowledges who Jesus is, and the people that are supposed to get it just can't get it. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. 
yeah, so the question is, what does Jesus mean when he says, today you will be with me in paradise? Whew, we got to get to our discussion groups. <laughs> you know, it, that, is, that is one of the most fascinating questions. And as we think about this, and as we talk next week about uh, the importance of the resurrection, we are struck by some of these phrases. Because earlier he says, he tells, tells the disciples that what is it going to be like in the kingdom of God that in verse 30 of chapter 22, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. So is Jesus saying that there's going to be eating and drinking in heaven? It's kind of sounds like it. <laughs> it's all catered. <laughs> yeah. This is a perplexing thing. What exactly is Jesus trying to communicate to this, to this man that is being crucified with him? And what does he mean by paradise? And what does he mean by today? And, and we don't really know. And so all we're left with is to speculate. Um, yeah, we'll ask him when we get there. But it seems to be the case that Jesus, you know, it's interesting because when we look at other instances where Jesus encounters somebody and he says salvation, like when he says to Zacchaeus, salvation has come to your house today, even though Zacchaeus hasn't really done much. Um, this guy, this thief on the cross doesn't really do a whole lot other than acknowledge the innocence of Jesus and that he is the Christ. And it's like, boom, he makes it, seems to make it. And so, yes, the, this It's hard to say we can develop grand speculation around one singular verse about heaven, like this one. I mean, we could do like the prayer of Jabez and just write a whole book about it, sell mugs and that sort of stuff, make a lot of money. Um, so to answer your question, I don't know, Russ. <laughs> so it's interesting because, you know, we see in this burial that this... Um, massive preparation that takes place. We see Joseph uh, coming in, Joseph of Arimathea playing this big role. And notice this just struck me today. Their Messiah has just died, and what do they do on the next day? They honor the Sabbath. Like, literally, like, the experience, they are so committed to honoring the Sabbath that after Jesus dies, they rest. And I was just like, that is so bizarre to me. So bizarre. And you say, how bizarre? I don't know, I think that's a song. All right, we've gone over time. You can go and discuss.